We meet today in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul, Salvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This introduction is typical of Paul's other epistles, but there are some differences to which we need to pay attention. Paul joins Salvanus and Timothy with himself in his greeting. Very interesting. Salvanus, by the way, is a variant of Silas, according to Acts 15 verse 40. Now remember that Silas and Timothy had just returned to Paul with their report from Thessalonica. By joining their names with his here, the Thessalonians who do know that they are all in agreement concerning this letter. Silas and Timothy are not mentioned as co-authors, but as fellow laborers of Paul. The Thessalonians knew them and would be pleased by the mention of Paul's companions. One of them could even have served as a writer to of this epistle, Paul usually addresses the church in a specific place. Here the emphasis is placed on the vital union of these believers with the Father and the Son, a fulfillment of the promise in John 17 verse 21, you in me and I in you. This is the basis for unity and spiritual growth in the church. Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They may have a little different lifestyle and have different problems from the church in Philippi. But just like the church in Philippi, it is in God and the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't read that in the other epistles, because this is the first epistle Paul has written. He says it only once, and this will be enough. He won't go over this again. When the Lord prayed to the Father, he asked that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. John 17 verse 21 to verse 23. You see, my friend, any believer who is in Christ Jesus is also in God the Father. That is a very safe place to be safer than any safe deposit box that people might even think of. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a formal introduction which Paul uses in all his epistles. Grace comes first, followed by the peace of God. Both the grace and the peace come from God the Father and from the Lord Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2.
Paul here prayed for all the churches that he had founded. Paul had a tremendous prayer list, my friend, and it could make an interesting study for you to just find all the people who were on that list. You could be surprised how many different churches, individuals, and groups of people the Apostle Paul prayed for. And he says, we give thanks to God always for you all. You see, he gives thanks for this church because of the many things. And one of the most important one was because they were examples. It was a model church. It was a model church. Now, the next verse is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. And it follows a pattern of the Apostle Paul, which we find in his writings. He emphasized the number three. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. The three that I'm talking about, he says, remembering without ceasing, first, your work of faith, Secondly, your labor of love. And thirdly, your patience and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said, this is a very important verse of scripture. It contains a wealth of meaning. Paul associates the three Christian graces, faith and love and hope. In First Corinthians, he also brought these three graces together. First Corinthians chapter 13 Verse 13, and now abides faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You can see that this universe in which you and I live bears the mark of the Trinity. Isn't it interesting? The interesting thing is that the word of God does the same thing. The universe it bears witness to the Trinity. The human beings bear witness to the Trinity. God the Father bears witness to the Trinity. And so the word of God. Paul speaks of man as a Trinity. We will discuss this specifically when we get to the fifth chapter, particularly verse 23, where you hear Paul saying, And I pray God that your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved, blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Man is a trinity. There are some other interesting examples of the significance of the number three. For example, have you noticed that in Genesis only three sons of Adam are named? And I'm sure that Adam and Eve had more than three sons. They probably had hundred or more. They started the human race, but only three of the sons are named. Cain, Abel, and Seth. In this verse, Paul actually gives three graces of the Christian life. The past is the work of faith. The present is the labor of love. The future is the patience of hope. That is the biography of the Christian and the abiding permanent and eternal features of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love are abstract nouns. They seem to be way up yonder, but we are way down here. How can we get them out of space and theory into the reality of life down here? 
How can we make them concrete instead of abstract qualities? Well, this is like the story of the contractor who loved children. He put down a sidewalk one day, finished it in the afternoon. He came back the next morning to find that some children had walked on the concrete and had left their footmarks on it. He was very angry and was talking very loudly. A man who was standing by said, I thought you loved children. The contractor said, I love them in the abstract, but not in the concrete. Isn't that funny? I loved them in the abstract, but not in the concrete. My friend, so the question here is, how are we going to get those words down into something that is concrete? Put it into practice. Paul takes these three words from the beautiful eyes of somewhere and he puts them into the shoe leather. He gets them down to where the shoe leather meets the sidewalks of our hometown, our home life, our factory floors. He fleshes up these abstract qualities by taking out of the morgue of never, never land. Notice how he does it. From the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope, he cites three steps in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. There are three steps in their lives that would take these abstract terms into reality. First, how you tend to God from idols. That is the work of faith, my friend, to serve the living and true God that is the labor of love. And to wait for his son from heaven. This is the patience of hope. Isn't that interesting? Now the work of faith is a strange expression. Because we are told that by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. That is according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9. Yet here it is called the work of faith. Well, I think that Paul is making it very clear that he and James do not contradict each other. James writes, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. James 2 verse 18. That is the work of faith. It is the way faith is demonstrated to others. So the writings of James and the writings of Paul certainly do not contradict each other, as some have suggested, because they are both writing about the same thing. Faith is the response of the soul of man to the word of God. When a man responds to the word of God, then he walks by faith. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. The Lord Jesus said the same thing. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. John 6, verse 28 to 29. You see, Jesus didn't say that you can come to God with your works, but that you must come to God by faith. You must believe. Then a faith that is living will make itself manifest. 
it will reveal itself in the life that is lived. As believers, we need to realize that the work of faith is acting upon the word of God. What is the work of God? It is to believe on Jesus Christ. That is how the Lord Jesus defined it. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. When you act on what the word of God says, your faith will be evident in the world. That is the work of faith. This is illustrated even in the life of Cain and Abel. What was the problem with Cain? He was a sinner by nature, but he was also a sinner by choice and act. We are told in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. How? By being a nice little Sunday school boy? No, no. Although he was a sinner as Cain was a sinner, Abel responded to the word of God and believed God. When he believed God, he was saved. He manifested that faith by bringing the proper sacrifice. Faith is the connection between the believer and God. It communicates his word to your heart and you respond. That is what conversion is. Conversion is to believe God, my friend. These Thessalonian believers turned to God from idols. Paul didn't go into Thessalonica and say, I don't think it's proper for you people to worship idols. That's a terrible thing to do. He never said anything like that. When he went there, he preached Christ. Idolatry wasn't repulsive to these people. But when they heard Paul present Christ, they believed God and they turned to God. When they tended to God, they automatically tend from idols. Paul remembered without ceasing not only the work of faith of the Thessalonian believers, but also their labor of love. Now what is the labor of love? God does not save by love. He saves by grace, which is love in action. Labor and love don't seem to fit together, by the way. But love will labor, however. And when it does, it just doesn't seem to be labor. This can be illustrated by a story of a little girl who was carrying a heavy boy. A man passing by said to her, Isn't that baby too heavy for you? She answered, Oh no, he's my brother. You see, my friend, love makes all the difference in the world. Labor isn't labor. When it is a labor of love. She loved her brother and so even though the brother was heavy, that burden was not felt because of love. The Lord Jesus Christ really put it right on the line when he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14 verse 15. If you don't love him, you will find it nothing but tedium and labor to keep his commandments. I don't think it's worth trying. His commandments will become burdensome. If working for the Lord is a great burden to you today, my friend, I believe that the Lord Jesus would say to you, give it up. Don't bother yourself. He doesn't want it to be like that. We are to love him. Then whatever we do for him will be a labor of love. 
that should characterize the life of the believer. It is said that one time when Dwight L. Moody came home, his family said to him, Cancel your next meeting. You look so weary, and we know that you are tired. He gave this tremendous response. I am weary in the work, but I'm not weary of the work. Isn't that amazing? Tremendous reply. I tell you, my friend, it is wonderful to get weary in the work of God, but not to get weary of the work of God. Love to God is expressed in obedience. Now, the third thing for which Paul commends the Thessalonian believers is their patience of hope. After they had tended to God from idols to serve the living and true God, they also waited for his son from heaven. That is the patience of hope. Every man lives with some hope for the future, and that hope, whatever it is, will sustain him. Down through the centuries, man has expressed this. Martin Luther said, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. Long before him, Sophocles, the pagan, had written, it is hope which maintains most of many kind. O.S. Madden said, there is no medicine like hope, no incentive so great and no tonic so powerful as expectation of something better tomorrow. The poet Alexander Pope wrote, Hope springs eternal in the human breast. You see, my friend, this is a glorious, wonderful life when you have hope. What a glorious, wonderful life it is to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, the blessed hope. Multitudes today place their hope in men, thinking that men can solve all their problems. Thinking that men will bring peace, prosperity to the world. Men cannot do that. God put men out of paradise because man was a sinner, and man has been trying to build a paradise outside ever since. The church for years thought it was building the kingdom of heaven, and it was not. God wouldn't even let men live forever in sin, and we can thank him for that. Every age comes to a time of cosmic crisis and says, somehow we will work out our way. What is your hope today, my friend? Is your hope in some political party or in some man-made organization? God have mercy on anyone whose hope rests upon some little frail bark. That man is padding. I don't think that any man or any party or any group down here on earth can work out the problems of this world. The scepter of this universe is in the nail-pierced hands, and he will move at the right time. The one thing I know, all things do work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to his eternal purpose, so here Paul has brought together faith, love, and hope, the three tenses of the Christian life, the work of faith, which looks back on the cross and produces good works in the life, the labor of love, which is the present basis and motivation on which a child of God is to serve Christ, and 
the patience of hope which looks into the future. What a wonderful trinity of Christian graces. It should be the biography of every believer. It was the biography of the church at Thessalonica. And I hope it is the biography of your church too and your life. Now Paul takes up another great truth. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. Here we come again to that wonderful word, election. We looked at this word in the epistle to the Ephesians. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Now, Paul doesn't mind writing about election in this epistle to the Thessalonian believers. And he presents it from God's side of the ledger, by the way. You and I do not see his side, and we have never seen it. But there are certain great axioms of truth that we must put down. Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that you were born? You could have been non-existent. I could have been non-existent. God did not come to me and ask me, Asafa, do you want to come into existence? I wasn't even in existence so that he could ask me. He is the one who thought of it. He is the one who is responsible for my existence. And he did not ask me whether I wanted to be male or female. He didn't ask me whether I wanted to be born in this day and age. He didn't ask me to choose my parents. He didn't ask me to decide whether my parents would be godly or they would be wealthy or they would be poor. And it is God's choice. God today is running this universe on the same basis. It is his. You may not like the way he is doing, but that just happens to be the way it is, my friend. Now God is not tyrant. No one is chosen against his will. And no one is rejected against his will. God is right in all what he does. Paul asks now the question, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And he answers his own question with a strong negative. God forbid. Romans 9 verse 14. So God is right in all that he does. So what must we do? We need to get back to that place where we recognize that we are mere creatures. Not only creatures, but we are totally depraved creatures. The fact is that we are in rebellion against God. Now let me repeat what Paul has said to the Thessalonian believers in verse 4. Knowing, beloved brothers, your election by God. Maybe you don't like this face, but this is the way it happened. And God is running this universe. Instead of joining a protest march against him, I suggest that you fall down on your face before him and thank him that he has brought you into existence. And that he has given you the opportunity as a free moral agent to make a decision for him. His invitation still stands today. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
John 7 verse 37. Are you thirsty? Then come to Christ. He stands ready to receive you. You say you are not thirsty. Then forget it. God offers a full and free salvation to this lost world today. He says to men and women, take it or leave it. That is where our freedom comes in. We can either choose him or reject him. There is no middle ground, my friend. Each person has the freedom to decide one or the other. Which way have you decided? You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please send a WhatsApp message or SMS to plus two seven seven two six four one four four seven five. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. I'll repeat that number for you. It's country code two seven followed by 7264144475 from within south africa it's 0726414475